from the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to All Things Alice. I have a great show for you today. I'm so lucky to have this very talented, hardworking group of creatives from the Bad Hats Theater. You'll have to forgive my predisposition to call them the Mad Hats. Maybe it's the Mercury I had this morning for breakfast. Seriously, though, these folks are incredible. They have an amazing adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that's won a bunch of awards. I'm excited to talk about that because they get on stage with musical instruments, singing, costume sets, and they go mad. We're also going to be talking about their adaptation of Peter Pan, Narnia, which is coming up, and just get a sense of their creative approach to taking on these wonderful classics. So let's jump down the rabbit hole and see what they have to say. I'm so happy to have you join me today. Fiona Souter, Landon Doak, and Victor Pakinko. So I want to talk about uh, Mad Hats. It's Mad Hats Group, right? Uh, your th- theater company, do I have that right? It's, it's actually, actually Bad Hats. I mean, Bad Hats, Bad Hats. Okay, <laughs> let's start with that. Bad Hats. So I'm always interested in mad, the madness of creativity, and uh, I'm wondering if you have to be a milliner to be in your theater group. And the mad part of it comes from, obviously, the mercury that I clearly have um, ingested too much of. So tell me about the reason for the uh, name uh, Mad Hats. So, so, so bad hats. Started... I mean, bad hats. Oh my God. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all right. I kind of oh like Oh my the God. <laughs> okay. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> let's say, well, let's just use an Alice line. We're all mad here. Now go ahead, clarify, help me out. Tell me the story. <laughs> so, so, um, Bad Hats started uh, in 2015. Uh, it was co-founded by me and an artist named Nicola Atkinson. And then over time, sort of through making work with friends that we met through the community or for, through school, uh, we started to figure out how it was logical for this group of people to run a company. So everyone kind of found their place in in Bad Hats over the years. Um, and now we've got a cohort that basically spends all our time trying to figure out how to make space for, write and produce new musicals. Um, 
many of which are adaptations like Alice that we're talking about. The name Bad Hats comes from hats, yes. You don't have to be a millionaire to be part of the uh, cohort, <laughs> but uh, the name came from uh, a friend of mine in Ottawa. Um, their name's Megan and we had, I had bought us matching hats and Megan's hat is very small and we kept laughing and Megan's hat kept falling over their eyes and they kept going bad hat, bad hat. <laughs> and I thought, thought bad hats theater, for some reason it just had a ring to it. I said, there, there's someone should make a company called bad hats theater. And we were theater creators then working together. And um, so we, we just kind of ran with it and it became an umbrella under which um, now all these fine folk sit with me. And I love it. The other, um, the other cool thing that we kind of realized in recent years uh, is bad hat being a, a Britishism for sort of a bad egg or a, mm. or a shit disturber. Can we swear? Is that okay? Yeah, or do you sure. Go ahead. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm it's shit disturber is all I'm gonna say. Um, but uh, it sort of suits us. We all started sort of as actors uh, primarily and we grew into various roles, be they writer composers or producers or directors or music directors or whatever it is. But we, we've always sort of been interested in, interested in shifting the paradigm a little bit within the industry and, and doing things a little bit differently. So it, it, truly it was, I think, four years or five years in where we went, oh, this also means shit disturber. We can be that too. Um, and then the, the third thing we say to our, our uh, people who really want an answer is uh, we all have taken on a lot of hats, um, some good, some bad, and, uh, and truly we do do everything. As I, I think any, any, any creator does, um, especially anyone who's really like, I mean, you, should, you would probably know this, like taking on their own, their own projects, their own company, their own baby. Uh, you kind of fill in any gaps uh, that you can. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that everybody started off as actors because, you know, when you're an actor, often you feel out of control because you're waiting for somebody to give you an audition. That's a very uh, vulnerable place to be over a long period of time. So I, too, had started off as an actor and was looking to empower myself and uh, by writing stories. And suddenly that opens up a doorway to something else. And as you stated, you all seem to be Renaissance folks uh, doing many, many different things. That's very cool. So Fiona, you wrote the, you're the writer. So you adapted Alice in Wonderland. And um, Landon and Victor, you both composed the music. On your website, you say it's a contemporary, I'm going to talk about Alice in Wonderland, your show that was up last year and they were going to relaunch at the end of the year. It says it's a contemporary spin on Wonderland that takes us down a rabbit hole with Alice, a girl with a lot of questions. Get curiouser, get curiouser. Now it's a musical retelling. So what is your contemporary spin on Alice? Having a lot of experience with this, I'm very curious and curiouser. <laughs> That's good. Um, great question. We had done a production of Peter Pan uh, that was very successful and, and ran for many years in Toronto and um, uh, around Ontario and is being licensed across Canada now. And that was sort of a flagship production for the company. And following that, we knew we wanted to tell another story that could feel like it fell in sequence um, after Peter. And so we felt like Alice was a character of sort of a, a slightly older age than that, the story we had told with Peter. So we blindly picked the book knowing some things like the, the sort of general pop culture stuff that everybody knows about Alice, the sort of lore and fame uh, and, and sort of global adulation for the books that remains. Um, and we picked it up and we started reading it. And we didn't know when we started what the spin would be. Um, 
I had read it, been making furious notes. And I, I remember when Landon read it for the first time, they called me on the phone and I said, so what are your impressions? Where do you want to go with it? What do you want to do? Because Landon had done the music for Peter um, and we had worked on that together. Um, and Len the first thing Landon said was like, have you noticed how many question marks there are on every page? And I was like, that's true. It's a, she's, she's just this girl who cannot stop asking questions. Obviously she's in a strange place. That's par for the course, but particularly her curiosity and curiosity as sort of a central focal point of the books um, drew us in. And at that exact moment, I came around the corner onto my street, we were on the phone and I thought, okay, so maybe we can set this in a place that sort of begs questions that like has a lot of sort of questions in the fabric of our, our, our beginning, um, you know, mise-en-scene as it were. Uh, and literally came around the corner and, and in like a beam of light on the street, there was a little child's school desk sitting in like, it was the fall and just very picturesque. And I told Landon, I gotta go, I have an idea. <laughs> so I picked the desk up and I put it on my head and I walked it home and I sat home at home with it. And I thought we should set this in a classroom. And so that's what our, our story does. It's a contemporary classroom. Alice and her classmates have been assigned a, a homework assignment that Alice is really struggling with. And she, unlike her classmates, can't help but ask questions about all the things around her as concerned time, as concerned her purpose in the world, as concerned the questions on this assignment. She's banished to the corner of the classroom. She sees a rabbit out the window in the schoolyard and the story unfolds. So that's sort of where we, we, we begin now. And then we go into um, all sorts of styles and uh, times and places uh, through Wonderland because it allows you to do that. And the the question that she's asked, or the the number twelve on the assignment, because it's a twelve, it's like it's an all about you assignment uh, that that the kids have to answer. And the question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Everyone in the class sort of has their own answer. Some people say I want to be, uh, you know, a CEO. Some people say I want to be an expert. Uh, you know, then there's that's sort of widely debated in the class. Alice says, how could I possibly decide? She's like, there's so many things I could be. Uh, and sort of she she's on her she has scribbled thousands of answers of saying, well, I don't know, I could be a fireman, I could be a dentist, I could be a doctor. Um, and it and so, sort of she finds she finds it a bit unfair, I think, uh, Fiona, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is me. I am I, also the producer of the show. So I had the pleasure. These two were in it. I had the pleasure of watching it <laughs> hundreds of times. Uh, but it's it's a really amazing thing of sort of uh, and, and a commentary a little bit on them the school system of like what like what business do we have asking a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old you know what do you want to do for the rest of your life and and extrapolating that further like what business do we have asking high school students to make giant decisions about their future education when i don't know i feel like i'm i'm now in my 30s and i feel like i now kind of know <laughs> what i want to be doing with my life but until then so much is asked of these young people uh, to answer at such an early age. Anyway, so that's the struggle that she goes through, which kind of leads her down the rabbit hole, um, literally and figuratively. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, Alice has been read by multiple generations and it's captured a large part of our shared imaginative history. You know, when there's creators like yourself, selves who can kind of can can plumb the zeitgeist of what's going on and come up with a theme, uh, I was curious, I was going to ask this question, I think you just answered it, what you were hoping that your show would add to the Alice shared imaginative canon that you have pulled from to come up with this story? What would you want people to take away? I think that theme that you just talked about uh, of 
putting so much pressure on kids to identify what their life path is going to be as a good one, uh, not so far away from Lewis Carroll's Who Am I? Is there more in the show, or um, would that crystallize what you're adding to the Alice canon? It's a great question. I think that, I think with all art, one of the best and maybe the only thing we can do is sort of offer a piece of ourselves, right? So I think that in this, we all felt like we wanted to write something that was was for everyone, but in order to heal some sort of thing that felt like it was out of tune in ourselves. I think all of us who are writing the show had a sense of um, needing it in a way. We wrote something that we felt like we needed, um, which was, I think, a reminder that as we peek into adulthood, in our version, Alice is kind of peeking into adolescence, but for us, we felt like we were we were peeking out of that into sort of a set of rules, responsibilities, and expectations that we'd heard about in our youth, mm-hmm. and now we're ours to um, action as adults and and leaders uh, in an arts organization and um, just people trying to move through the world. And we we were sort of at odds with uh, some of those rules, some of those responsibilities, a sense that okay, so now I'm seen as this, like there's a, the impression from society is that I'm whatever I am. I mean, on the podcast, you, you can't tell, but I'm, I'm, I'm a young person with wild red hair and there's an impression of me in the world. And that's the thing that I will be henceforth. Right. Mm -hmm. And this idea that we can't go and then change those things about ourselves and reinvent ourselves. I'm not just saying change your hair, but change what your values are, change your job, change your lifestyle. Um, we felt a bit stuck, even though we're in this really like, you know, bubbling, uh, constantly uh, changing arts sector, um, we still feel that. And so we felt like we needed to give ourselves as well as our audiences a reminder that we are forever peeking into potential new versions of ourselves. It's not that, you know, adolescence starts and you have to become this new complete version of yourself and then you're 20 and this needs to happen now and then you're 30 you have to have answers to these questions. It's good to have questions for the entirety of your life and you can continue to reinvent yourself as you grow. And I think that that's what we needed to to hear. And with all our shows that are for all audiences, we kind of take the things we knew as kids and try to remind them and give them back to the elder generations that are in the audiences. So kids feel a bit seen when they come to our shows. And I think hopefully the more adult audiences that we, that bring the kids feel like, oh, I used to have that wisdom. Where did it go? Um, so that's, that's a lot of what the, the purpose is. I don't know if Landon, you can, can speak to any of that a bit more. Well, I was going to ask you, Landon, because in the mission statement, it t- you talk about you talk about getting back to that that childhood curiosity, that childhood imagine imaginings, uh, that where so much great creativity comes from. How do you access that part of you to come up with either your performances or the music that you write? I think to be a successful artist, you kind of always have to hold on to that part of yourself. Um, There's a reason children are so imaginative and children strangely make really good actors as well. And I think it's because we come into the world as these creative and imaginative beings, but pretty quickly, yeah, we are told we have to start to become something. And so our, our options become increasingly limited the older we get in terms of who we can become or the way we're seen in the world. So I definitely think just being an artist at all, you have to kind of fight to keep that part of yourself alive. And like Fiona said, when we were creating this show, you know, in our version, Alice is is peeking into adolescence and we were peeking into adulthood. And 
for example, when we were working on Peter Pan, we were all sort of right out of school and we didn't have careers yet or reputations yet. We had everything to gain and nothing to lose. Um, but after the success of Peter Pan stepping into writing Alice, it was sort of our sequel kind of going, can we do this again? Uh, what happens if we fail? We have success, you know, a perceived version of success now. What happens if we fail and we lose that? So again, our version of Alice is sort of reminding ourselves as creators to do what Alice does in the play, which is to keep asking questions rather than just trying to answer all of them. Because questions is a place where creativity can flow and thrive and answers are a place of absolutes. And it's a definitive place when you have an answer to something. There's less room to grow. There's not really somewhere to go when you have the answer to something. But a question is such an open door. So yeah, and I think in, you know, in Lewis Carroll's, you know, story, it's uh, a lot about the time and it's a very British story. So mm -hmm. it's about a young girl who's on her way to becoming a proper young British lady. And so I don't think we needed to retell that story, but you can translate that story to just any young person having to become anything and how that's such a wonderful opportunity we all have is to step into a version of ourselves, but it can also just be really limiting. And so, yeah, I think just where we were all at as young people and as young artists who are at the beginning of our career and having some success, trying to hold on to that success. But I do think a key into that success is your naivete and not having all the answers and asking questions. You know, there's something talking specifically about music, you know, a lot of musicians will know like the four chords, you know, in any key, the four chords and how many successful pop songs are built off of the four chords. Well, me as a musician today, I won't let myself write a four chord song because I know that, I don't know, that's basic or that's amateur or that's been done so often. But when I was younger, before I knew my music theory, I, I would play the four chords and feel like I had just come up with the greatest hook of all time because I wasn't aware I had been writing a four chord song. So out of my ignorance, and I think a lot of musicians from a place of ignorance, from a place of unknowing, we let ourselves write something that when you're a more mature artist, you might judge it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a reason a lot of the most famous pop songs in the world were written by teenagers and by young people. Because I think when you become an older musician, you judge that type of work and you go, it's been done. I can do better than that. I can find something more interesting to listen to. But sometimes simplest is best. And I think that's why children and young people create some really amazing art from that place of discovering something new for the first time and not knowing that there's somewhere else to go yet. It sounds like you had a big success or you with uh, Peter Pan and that to a certain extent, ignorance is bliss. And then there was an yeah. expectation uh, in terms of the next level. And when there's an Definitely. expectation, then there's more pressure and then there's more self-reflection and then there's higher stakes. So, uh, and then there's the possibility of failure. I'm really interested in failure as a 
device to help us to expand and improve, but I'm also worried about failing. And my father used to say that failing was the best um, thing that ever happened to him because it always opened a door to something new. So my question is after Peter Pan and which is a you know is a huge story, a big IP that's been around as long as almost as long as Alice. When you tackled Alice, how how do you confront the idea of that anxiety of either telling yourself, maybe you didn't say this, but you want to do better, or you want to do as well, or you don't want to fail? Those negative thoughts that come in, it seems to me that what you are saying is you remind yourself about asking yourself questions um, as a device to move the creative process forward. Is that uh, true for all of you? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think what uh, resonated for me in what Landon was just saying or reminded me of was was the naivete you have when you write a first draft of something mm. is bliss. It's like, mm -hmm. like, here's my first, it's like, we often say first thought, best thought. We'll go through drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts of the scene and then go, someone will go, well, what if it was this? And we'll be like, yes. And then we'll go, that was actually how it was when we began, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but just that Landon and I have talked about this lots and Victor too, that you know you write a first draft and you feel good about it. And then, then the hard part and the painstaking part comes when you have to, you must take it apart and you must make it better. And you, there's, you think it's not really impenetrable, but it just feels good to have, have it, have it feel good <laughs> for the first time. So in terms of the anxiety of that, that's a good question. I think it's, it's sort of, you can only do the next right thing, right? You go, okay, well, if I look at the whole mountain, if I zoom out and I go, how will this feel on opening night? in a year from now when we're mounting it and people are seeing it for the first time and those people saw us do XYZ art before and have XYZ expectation, you can you could go down a rabbit hole very quickly. But you have to kind of go back to focusing on the micro, which is like Landon was saying, little questions like, do I like this line? Is this funny? Or um, does the music want to come in here or here? Or what do we do to work on next? When will we meet next? You just have to put one foot in front of the other, I think. And uh, the, the, the joy that we have is that we're all really good friends and we mm. laugh a lot and we have fun <laughs> doing what we do. Yeah. Uh, we're really lucky. Like I spend most of my days working with these goobers and uh, <laughs> we, we have a, a, a wildly fun time um, and we get to put a lot of ourselves in the piece. So mm -hmm. what's making us laugh today often, like tons of the material is just jokes we've made to each other about the work that we think are funny enough that they go in the show. So anyone who comes to the, the, the shows or is in the shows, they'll go, what's this line from? I'll be like, oh, this one time at Victor's house when this funny thing happened. And that's why this whole plot line exists or 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 what have you. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but you kind of just keep going and hope for the best. And I think we have to make room for artists also to fail. Like we have to be allowed to make bad work. And I think that's something that we've learned post Alice, not because Alice was, was bad, it was huge success, but that I think the pressure in a way kind of only grows and we've only just now started talking about um, it's okay to fail forward. My my dad used to say, uh, it's a BB King line, you better not look down or you might not keep on flying, which mm. I think is is a good one. And I think about that all the time. It's the rabbit hole of if I look down at what's possible in, in the darkness of what could go wrong or the way I could fall, I will. But I think it's also okay to go, if I do fall, it's okay. I'll be, I, I've got all these people who will catch me and I'll catch me and art, uh, you know, you need to learn. So there's going to have to be darkness and lightness in the process. I think you have another theme for the title of your group, Bad Hats. 
when we make bad decisions and fail, uh, it's okay. So yeah. what about you, Victor? Oh, I just wanted to add, I mean, yes to everything. Here's the thing. We are, we're, we're operating on the same brainwaves here. So I, uh, I can, I can yes and anything these two say. Um, I just wanted to add in the, you know, the, the old adage of like, you have your whole life to write your first novel. You have your whole life to write your first play. Um, and Peter Pan had, you know, there was no expectation. As Landon said, no one knew who we were. I, I personally, yeah, there was a lot of fear of failure for me of like the sophomore project, right? And we, we do other things outside of these major, we call these kind of our mainstream mm -hmm. flagships. We do a lot of other things. We have development pro uh, programs. We, we do little smaller plays, we do workshops, but it was a big thing. And, and suddenly people go, okay, when, when's the next one ready? And we had the, like the extreme privilege of, uh, we have the extreme privilege here. And again, the Canadian theater landscape is different from the, the landscape in the U S and it's frankly as decimated, like it's not, neither is good, um, when it comes to nonprofit theater, but, um, we have an extreme privilege that our work has been programmed time and time and time again and that doesn't happen very often um where we're at so the fact that we managed to run peter pan ran from 2015 to 2019 uh, not continuously but it had it had runs here and there it would tour around for two months and then it would take a break and then it would run for two months in toronto take a break go out to winnipeg and manitoba and you know do three weeks there we had an opportunity to do that show over and over and over and what that afforded us was sort of um was visibility and presence in the landscape while being able to work on Alice. Alice, we started work in 2018, and this is not this is not crazy for a for a, a Broadway show, for example. But for a Canadian theater show, it's frankly you usually start writing and then you have a premiere within a, within a year. Uh, we started in 2018 and we premiered on stage in 2022. Um, and every we've now done it. We did it in, in uh, we did a digital version over the pandemic that was sort of a, a workshop production. We did a, um, a show out in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, a production there, and then we brought it kind of as the premiere in Toronto in uh, December of 2022. And now we're doing little rewrites and we're coming back for a remount and we'll do little rewrites before we do it again in 2024. We have two stops planned for 2024. Um, so it's nice that we have this time to make iterative art, but also we weren't rushed to do the thing. Mm. Pandemic helped, mm -hmm. I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. we, were, we would have probably been rushed faster than we wanted to go. Pandemic did help. And, and I think that it quelled a lot of the fears of like, okay, the sophomore project, we suddenly felt we had the time with it and we could actually put forward something worthwhile, so, like a, a message to say, you know? And if I can add one more thing about the fear as an artist is there's just an element of mindfulness you have to practice of just not looking at it, and giving it too much of your attention and energy because it is real, you know? Same thing like, am I gonna make rent next month? That's only so useful to actually helping you make rent next <laughs> month because sometimes the anxiety and the fear can just become debilitating. And it's not, sometimes the pressure can prompt you into creativity, but sometimes it can actually inhibit the creativity. And so like Fiona said about um, how much we make our, each other and ourselves laugh within a creative process, just sort of leaning on to those moments because yeah, when the pressure's out there and opening nights on its way and you're thinking about all the important people coming to your show, it can be a debilitating thing. And it is true and it is the reality, but giving it too much attention, I find is just often not that useful. So I really just try to practice not looking at it. And the other thing when I was a younger artist is I didn't think too much about what other people thought. I just knew I was making myself and my friends laugh and that was enough. And then in this process, at the beginning, you start thinking, well, what are people going to think? Are they going to like it? Is it going to be as good as next time? Can we 
Can we maintain this status we've risen to? And again, that fear I find just gets in the way. And the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to go back to that youthful place of just trusting my taste and trusting the way I make my friends laugh in a room. And I've just gotten better at trusting that, okay, if I like something, chances are other people will probably like it as well. I'm an audience member in theater. I consume a lot of art. So my taste must count for something. So I just choose to not look at the fear as much, to trust my own taste and what I think is good and what is funny and that of my colleagues, Victor and Fiona and the other creators in the room and our friend Matt. And it seems to help steer the ship in the right direction. I have one thing to toss into this, though. I'm sorry, because I, I don't want to I don't want to belabor this, but um, it, it also relates back to, I think, what what our what our contribution in terms of um, Alice and the Zeitgeist is. Uh, and it's something that you had mentioned, Frank, of like Lewis's sort of um, Lewis Carroll's sort of who am I thesis. And it's something that obviously is very prevalent. We're not ignoring the source material, but um, in our version, our, our director, I remember this was years and years ago, and our director has been with the piece for, for a very long time, since 2018, since we started writing. Um, her name is Sue Minor, and Sue was, she was going for a job of some sort, um, and we kind of asked her, we said, Sue, are you, no, was it that we asked her, no, she was in, in the interview for the job, and they said, you know, this will be the things, and she said, this is all fine, as long as I can stay Sue, I can do anything, and it's something that resonated with me a lot, and I know it resonated with Fiona as well, and it's sort of, uh, not that it worked its way into the play, I think it was always there, but it inspired a lot of that element of it, of saying that it doesn't matter who you want to be when you grow up, what you want to do, as long as you stay you, as long as we as artists, to what Landon is saying, stay ourselves in our in the creation of it, you can get through anything and you can push through any barrier. Um, and I think ultimately it's the ultimate answer of what we want to do when we're older should just be, or what who we want to be when we're older is just ourselves. Um, and ourselves as doctors, as veterinarians, as I almost said lamppost technicians, as though that was a real thing. Um, you know, the people who, who work on lampposts. <laughs> um, uh, Landon, you mentioned that uh, Lewis Carroll wrote his piece uh, as a reflection of Victorian England. I'm wondering, uh, I have a question for all three of you. Why do you think it is that Alice in Wonderland uh, still resonates with audiences today, why is it that you can take something that was written 150 years ago and put a spin on it? Why? What is it about that story, do you think? I do actually think there is something to be said for the sort of 60s and 70s psychedelic um, sort of drug experimentation era, the sort of hippie movement, if you will, in the Beatles. I do think the caterpillar sitting on the mushroom, smoking a hookah, um, and the Mad Hatter. I don't know if that is Lewis Carroll's intention, if that's really written into the book, but it seems that sort of, yeah, hippie and psychedelic culture has taken Alice on as a bit of a icon. Well, well, that that's true uh, for the '60s. That um, Alice is a reflection of the decade, of the era, um, and uh, and the music in particular uh, is speaks to that. That's not part of the original text, and that's you know 80 years after he wrote the piece. But it is interesting that that because it's not really in the text, but people seem to have grabbed onto that 
imagery. Well, in the same way that um, the same way that the Matrix um, took the Alice and made it about the internet and falling down that yeah. rabbit hole and tech. So each you know each decade does sort of take and reimagine it to, which is the great thing about some of these stories is because they can be, they can be retold. So they have meaning for a contemporary audience as your Mm -hmm. play or your musical is doing with your theme that is personal to you. And as you said earlier, it's a reflection of who you are and that becomes part of the canon. I'm just always interested in why this story and what is it thematically or what is it saying? Because it says a lot of things. It, you can see it as a horror uh, story because she's getting really tall and it's out of control, or you can th- see it as a whimsical place that Wonderland is now that we identify as winter Wonderland is, you know, is it's a beautiful place. It's a noun, a place to go. Um, but I'm, I'm interested, maybe, uh, Fiona, when you're writing, were there themes coming out from the original that you said, oh, these are universal themes of identity or, 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 or logic? Like for me, it's, 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 it's the, it, it's, the world is so illogical where facts are no longer facts that Alice is the archetypical story of illogic and it seems relevant now. That's a very long question, and sorry to be pontificating, but go ahead. <laughs> no, pontificate away. I think you hit the nail on the head that the that the universality, I think, exists in Alice receiving a world that is a mirror of the real world and its um, illogical aspects. Like, it's why is, why is time counted the way that it's counted? Why does the sun come up over there and go down over there? You know, uh, you know, what is gravity? Why, why are door handles this way? You know, how, and I think her changing sizes and all the things that, that um, happen like physically to her when she's in this world have so many nods to how does a person move through life? How do they move through the world? How do we fit? How does a young girl fit into society? She doesn't, if, you know, if she does want this certain thing wrong, uh, or, you know, you take one step this way and you're in another universe. And that's true in daily life. You go on a street you didn't go on and you're in a different universe. You get a phone call, your life can be one way. And so you get a phone call, you get information, and then you're in a completely different universe. Something terrible's happened or something amazing happened. I, I, I read somewhere that, that essentially the hero's journey is, you know, hero sets out on quest completes quest, comes home, and everything is changed. Whereas the heroine's journey is heroine sets out on quest, comes home, and spends the entire journey trying to get back to how it was before, Mm. like to level the playing field. And I think that's sort of interesting in Alice that she goes, especially in in, uh, Looking Glass is true. There's a bit more change at the end of Looking Glass, but but in Adventures in Wonderland, she sort of comes out and is like, oh, that was strange, and then continues on her way. And I sort of I sort of rebel against that a little bit. I felt like I needed to make a, a hero. The gendering of this is so silly and, and dated. But in terms of those two structures, I wanted to have Alice have things changed um, for her when she got home. So this is only to say that I think there's a there's a quest-like nature to it that has just as many heinously illogical things that everyday life has at all the in all the decades that this story has been popular. It's been nonsense since it was written, you know, 
life. <laughs> so I think that we keep flocking back to these things that make us feel a little bit seen and make us feel like the frustration around the the structures of the world and the rules of the world uh, are reflected back to us. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I also uh, I agree with that uh, that her adventure is a quest, but she's so passive and asking questions helps give her some agency, but she doesn't have the 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 traditional or classic hero's journey where when she it, when, there's an arc by the end of it. And that also bothered me, which was one of the reasons I wrote The Looking Glass Wars. But let's get into the music because Landon brought up uh, The Beatles and I Am a Walrus and uh, is, a, is a classic song that was inspired by Alice. Lucy in the Sky is another one. There's so much music in culture that um, that is inspired by Alice. What kind of music influences have you had for your for your show, and what um, what style are, are, are you blending? A lot of it is 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 my my influences. I heard some artists talk about uh, influences and how early on in your career as a songwriter, you will hear you'll just hear the influences. So when I was a younger songwriter you'd hear a lot of the Beatles you know a lot of traditional musical theater um a lot of pop punk a lot of Green Day hmm. you'd hear my song and go that sounds like this Paul McCartney song or that sounds like this Green Day song and the more influences you start to gather as an artist the more you can't actually hear those specific artists and those specific influences and instead my artistry gets to be on the forefront which is an amalgamation of all these different influences um but it almost is i i do feel now like there's a little bit of like a a landon joke style mm. uh now i collaborated on the music with victor and so victor has a background in uh, a lot of classical music actually and we have very different tastes uh david although david byrne is definitely a crossover one which is definitely a whimsical <laughs> flavor right it's the guy from talking heads and so victor is um, smiling and laughing you people can't uh, see that but i can so uh you'll have to elaborate after he's finished victor uh why you are laughing so much about the david byrne but go ahead landon well but so so anyway when we talk about you know the 60s 70s psychedelic movement uh that's a massive influence in the type of music i write uh I'm definitely a Beatles fan, but I got to be honest, for me, I'm a Paul McCartney fan, first and foremost. Uh, I think he's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. So, uh, you know, probably some of my my top five favorite songs are Paul McCartney songs. So that's definitely an influence in my writing. I also listen to a lot of musical theater and I listen to a lot of rap music and R&B music. Uh, so this show, I guess, would span from pop music to folk music to uh, a little bit of R&B. And then I would say because of Victor, Victor is a, a really accomplished pianist. So a lot of these songs, typically I, as a songwriter, I sit down on, on guitar, but there were times uh, where Victor would sort of just play piano. And actually when we started writing this show, me, Fiona and Victor went up away to the woods, not this woods, but a very similar woods. And we just spent the week together writing. And Victor would sort of just sit down on the piano and start playing something. And I would go that, that part, just take that part, loop that over and over again. And that would sort of be the impetus for me to write a certain song in the show. So like Fiona was talking about how we wanted to 
sort of create a proper hero's journey and a proper story arc to this thing. This show is that's hard to do with this show because like you were saying there that doesn't really exist. It's sort of like Winnie the Pooh in the sense that every chapter exists as its own little story and often every chapter is actually just a poem. Mm -hmm. It isn't really it it's still a story but there's no real beginning, middle and end. Yeah. And it's like each chapter kind of starts at the beginning again. You could almost rearrange the chapters in any order. And Alice in Wonderland as a text would be pretty much the same. And in fact, in our writing, we did rearrange the order of these scenes up until opening, really going, what scene should come before the other? Now, it was a little bit simpler for us because Fiona had created a plot structure that we wanted to adhere to. So it became a little bit more obvious the further down the rabbit hole we got. But um, that to say, you could write albums upon albums from this text. You know what I mean? There's so much poetry. Lewis Carroll touches every theme and idea under the sun. I wrote a lyric once. It didn't end up in the show. That was just, I've thought of every thought. And it was probably going to be for the caterpillar or something. Feeling almost like every thought has come into my brain at some point. Not every answer, but every thought has come across my brain. I'm sort of going down a rabbit hole myself now. But there's a lot of different styles of music in the show. My influences are the main influences you'll hear. So it's some version of contemporary pop, folk, musical theater. I find a lot of contemporary music these days is blending what we perceive as genres. And so you'll hear a lot of that in the show. But Victor has his, I'll let him talk about sort of his influences and what he likes about music because Victor also did a lot of the instrumentation. I typically sit down, I write the chords and the the melody and mm -hmm. the lyrics and feel and I collaborate on the lyrics, but Victor was the one who who really steered the ship about what instruments are going to be where and what instruments are going to make up which song. And we use these instruments called melodians, which is basically a little piano that you blow into that's got its own kind of whimsical sound. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah. There, so, I mean, and the reason that this instrumentation is so important is because these are actor-musician shows. So <clears throat> everything on stage is being played by the actors singing the song. So you might be noodling on the piano and then you jump off, you play the dodo for a bit and then you jump back in the water and you go to the piano or you go over to the electric bass and whatever. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, my, my influences are, are, as Landon said, I'm a classical pianist. I also was um, a concert tubist, uh, tuba player um, and brass player. So I played uh, I played a, a lot of that in my in my previous life. Um, and then I became a, I decided to ditch music and, and become an actor and then uh, it's all worked its way back. Um, the reason I was laughing about David Byrne was just he's so funny. Uh, I find his music so funny, like <laughs> like profoundly. You know, first of all, I love I love the the themes of home that he brings into everything that that he uh, that he writes. But one of the reasons we got drawn in uh, to David Byrne as an early influence of the show is um, Landon and I were really interested in the idea of time in music when we started writing this, and that was actually that was the first launch point. Uh, we were performing Peter Pan one day, and Landon and I were backstage, and Landon and I just started jamming like right before one of our entrances. We were both in the show. Uh, about, you know, what, what can we do strange with time and music? How do we make that come across? And a lot of those ideas were sort of like pushed to the side by the end of it because you need to make it palatable as well. You can't, you can't have this disjointed, strange, amelodic uh, stuff happening on stage. But David Byrne is someone who I, I really admire um, with his ability to sort of manipulate time without anybody realizing. If you listen to some of his songs and just try to count the downbeats, 
you'll notice he throws in extra beats, he takes out beats, and it it's almost imperceivable. It makes you sort of just hiccup for a second. Like your brain kind of does a, a, a sort of double take. Not enough to really go back and listen to it again or know what's happened, but it's this slight, slight jolt, the slight uneasiness that he impl uh, in, implements in there. And so there was a few songs that, um, the, the most, the most kind of out there one that we went with was the Tea Party song, um, which I wrote in three songs and three time signatures and overlapped them over each other, um, which was a, it's, it's a truly, I've, it's been described as one of my, um, my most sadistic, things I've ever done. Um, the band is like, I can't believe you make us do this every night. Everyone's just sweating the whole, and, and I mean, uh, Andy and Fiona play the, the Mad Hatter and the uh, the March Heron, and so they can speak to what it's like on the inside, but it is one of those like pretty, pretty insane and counterintuitive uh, songs, which we eventually wrote lyrics over top of, uh, which remarkably work well. Anyway, but go back to the instrumentation really quickly before we go too far into the tea party, which is my favorite part of the show. We we decided to go with, I, I didn't want anything that sounded too normal. I didn't want it to just be, you know, a, the classic kind of pit band on the side. I wanted it to feel something really whimsical. And we found these melodians, melodicas they're also called. They're functionally speaking the right hand of an accordion. That's to say the keyboard side of an accordion with a hose or just a little trumpet mouthpiece that you blow into and it blows air through it in a similar way that the bellows of an accordion would work, that it would pull air through it. And you get this sort of, um, this strangely tuned, the accordion is tuned on, you're probably gonna cut this out and that's okay. It's tuned on three three reeds and, and one of them is tuned a little bit flat, one of them is tuned right on the note and one of them is tuned a little bit sharp. So it gives you this kind of sound uh, as, as the, the reeds themselves are in dissonance. We liked these little instruments because they were portable and they were so squeaky honky strange while still producing enough sound to be able to actually orchestrate with. Um, so we had we have piano, we have bass, we have these we have three melodians, uh, percussion, we have a, a cajon, which is a drum box on wheels that zips around the stage. Um, and and then we have a clarinet and a trumpet. All of these are on stage while you're doing the show. Oh, my God, that is so awesome. And, and the great thing about it is, you know, Fiona is sort of the, a bunch of people play it, but Fiona is the, is sort of the queen of this cajon, this drum box. And it's literally flying around as she's as ripping on the drums. And then she passes it to someone else and someone else sits down and starts going, you know? And it's, it's a really fun, it's a really fun and accessible way of presenting this kind of musical because families and, and adults and kids and whoever comes to see it, watch us having an insane, it's an insane time, but an insane amount of fun. And they go, whoa, how do I do that? How do, you know, <laughs> and, and you realize that, that the same person who was playing the piano two seconds ago is now playing the clarinet. And you're going, how, how do they know how to do that? Yeah. Um, anyway, I've gone down a rabbit hole. My no, own. no, that's, that sounds genius. I think uh, anybody listening after that description would want to run out and see this show. I know I will. Um, well, and, and we do have a few little recordings that I'm sure we'll send your way that we can maybe please, get. please do. So, well, well, let me ask you: Is there some lyrics that you can share with us that captures the theme of your show? And what song do people hum on their way out or sing on their way out? I mean. I would say some of the first lyrics of the show that really, what the first thing you say in a show, I think is really important for, mm -hmm. for, for me. I'm always like, what is the first thing we get to hear? And the first thing we hear is, um, well, we hear a hum, but the first lyrics of the show are something starting. The clock is ticking, ticking. And so there's a sense of something's going to happen. But the first thing that, that 
um, Alice saying says, I can't help but wonder, why don't others wonder too? And so it's mm. this a big ringing mm. question in her mm. of, I can't stop my brain from being curious about everything. If you say it's a, it's like, you know, why is it called noon and also called 12 o'clock? And why don't the other times have names? And why do we say we tuck our pants into our shirts and not our shirt into our pants? It's the other way around. You know, like these things she can't, she sees things and she has, there's branches of questions that come off of it. And our proposal as the writers is that this is true for everyone. We've just trained ourselves not to ask them. And we've we've gotten really practiced at it and we need to unpractice it. So I think that that uh, captures it. But I could go through so many, so many lyrics. Um, well, I think that's, that's terrific. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, I think that is uh, very expressive of uh, what you're all been talking about. So is there a song that people have latched onto that they share, that they sing on the way uh, out? Yeah. Or? I mean, I think, I think it's really different because again, there's a lot of styles in the show. So depending on what you're into, you might latch onto something different. The queen song where we first meet the Red Queen. It's the Red Queen in our version. The 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 song starts. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be, Alice? Since you gotta be, what's it gonna be, Alice? You could be a queen. You could be a queen, mm. Alice. You could be free. You could be a queen. And that's sort of this hip hoppy song that really gets stuck in people's heads. But for me, two of my favorite numbers are the opening number, which we call Curious, and the closing number, which we call Questions. Mm. And they sort of book end the show uh, really well. And they're sort of two sides of the same coin the first one being curious and she starts in a place where she is curious and you'd almost think the natural place to end a show would be answers but instead it's not it's questions mm -hmm. and so the show ends with sort of this open door question mark inviting uh with alice inviting her her class and the audience to not actually answer those questions and to remain in that curious place so there's sort of a recurring line in the first song I'm not curious. I'm not interested. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. And it's Alice trying to talk to herself to beat away that curiosity. And then by the end of the show, she has embraced it. And it's actually after a run-in with the caterpillar who tells her that you don't need those answers and you don't need to figure out who you are. You are who you are till you aren't who you were then you are who you are and that changes you will learn um, is a lyric the caterpillar sings and by the end of the show that final song starts do you have a question go ahead and ask it um, and that's sort of the note we leave the audience on I really like that um, you guys have worked on a lot of fantasy with their Peter Pan and uh, Alice in Wonderland and I know you have a Narnia story coming up why do you think stories last and or music that can stand the test of time, especially these fantasy stories? I think that sort of to your to what we were talking about previously, it's it, it's it, they were these these ones, especially the ones you're mentioning, these three, they were written at times and at various times where um, they spoke to times that they were written in. But I do think that they are sort of universal in terms of the mirror they put up to society. And they were putting up mirrors to society back then, but it, it really creates a beautiful canvas for a few reasons. The first being recognition. People know when they go into Alice in Wonderland, they go, okay, I'm going to experience the Mad Hatter, the Caterpillar, the Queen of Hearts. 
And so you can take that and you can subvert that and you can change that and you can really ask the audience to see those those characters, those moments in different lights and reflect on their own lives um, in that way. But I also think that like kind of on a side note, one of the reasons these fantasy especially endure way longer than I think contemporary adapt uh, contemporarily written things is because technology is not as prominent a factor in those stories. That's to say technology in the sense of swords and shields or in the sense of, of sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, clocks, absolutely. But these aren't people sitting on their cell phones or uh, on their laptops. It, it, there's a universality to it because it, it is not rooted in time. Even though Narnia is set post-World War II, it's also in, in a different world, in a different time. Even though Alice was written in the 1880s? 60s, 80s, 60s, 1860s, written in the 1860s. It's not really about that. You can translate it because Wonderland is out of time and place and similar with Neverland, right? Written in the in 19, um, 1910s, but you're transported away from, from regular life. And so regular life in a way in these stories can be anything. It doesn't have to be post-World War II. It doesn't have to be the 1860s and 1910s. It can be now, it can be then, it can be the future. Uh, and the audience, in a way, we can help the audience decide that, but we have we also have license to sort of keep it keep it general for for people to say that's my childhood versus i i'm convinced the show is set in the 90s but i'm sure that kids that are watching it now think it's set in 2022 and that's amazing <laughs> you know yeah fantasy like victor said it allows you to not the the like unspecificness of a fantasy world allows you to imagine a multitude of life experiences and a multitude of of timelines into the same human experience. I actually love how Star Wars phrases it. They start everything with uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But to us, it looks like the future, but it's not actually. Star Wars is technically set in the past, but in a different galaxy. So it'll be those types of worlds. They have no timeline. They exist just in a different dimension. And I think stories last because the human experience hasn't changed that much you know since the beginning of time We've, we're all these little biological beings who have this innate sense for love and then we are all at war with time so being a human is sort of this weird little equation of the amount of time i have and the love i need to feel or give and what do i do with that love in the amount of time i have and I think that's just been true of the human experience forever. And it, that's never going to change. Definitely pop culture references, history, politics, our values as people do change. Um, but when you set a story in a, in a fantasy world, you take it outside of that stuff. And so you take it outside of time. But the fundamentals of yeah. being a human yeah. and love and time, those are the two big ones for me about what it means to be human. Those are going to be the same no matter what dimension or time period you're in. And so, yeah, this story has lasted along with a lot of stories. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, these universal truths and emotions kind of bind humanity. And, um, and these stories reflect that. And so it doesn't matter when they were written because it's at its essence, it's, it's about the human experience. And I think love and reinforcing certain values that we all aspire to is um is 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 evoked over and over and over again and it doesn't matter what era you are you're in because you're you're telling that same universal truth or you're trying to get to it yeah or what or or what era in your own era that you interact with a piece of art right 
I think, you know, we may have seen Alice uh, as a Disney film when we were young or we read the book or I read Peter Pan in grade, um, well, I read it when I was very little, was read to me. I remember reading Peter Pan in grade 11 and going, oh my God, this story for me right now in this moment of my life. And then I read it again and again and it changes, right? Sometimes I think of 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 each person sort of as like a tuning fork, you know, a tuning fork that you can, mm-hmm. you can bang on something and it rings out a note and we each have sort of a, a note. Um, and then when you pick up a piece of art, whether you listen to a song, you look at a painting, you read a book at a different age of your life, it it goes in harmony with that tune, your pitch in that moment of your life in a different way than it will when you're in your 60s or when you're at five years old or what it is. And sort of the spirit behind all our shows kind of is inspired by this idea that we can present this piece of art and it's going to be in harmony with people of different ages throughout the audience in different ways, but everyone is going to blend and make a chord sort of together watching it so that someone who's seven can lean in and go, Oh my God, what's going to happen to Alice. Someone who's 80 can go, Oh my God, I am Alice at the same time. Um, And I think that that's, that's what I love about interacting with art over time that has been interacted with over time before my time. Yeah. That's the whole reason that, um, that uh, when IPs or stories become in the are then in the public domain, that folks like us can take those and reimagine them to be relevant for a contemporary audience. So I'm I'm interested in what are you going to do with Narnia, uh, which is uh, is a classic story of good and evil, but it really is about courage and the coming together of these kids. So how, what, what do you guys, I mean, you don't have to tell us much, but just tease us a little bit since that's your next show. We realized at the close of Alice and looking forward to what the next story would be that we wanted to make the three a triptych. So Peter, Alice, and Narnia being three panels of the same painting, each representing a different sort of age of life or a bit of a meditation on different ages of life. So Peter sort of is about the story of the moment when you go, oh, I can't stay a child forever. I have to move on from the the freedom and whimsy of childhood. And that is a, a choice. I, can't, I don't have any other choice in the matter. Here I go. Alice is about that moment where you go, adulthood's on the horizon. Summers don't last as long as they used to. I have to take on the responsibility for my life and my time and what I do with it. Um, and Narnia jumps quite far in the future um, to what it looks like at the end of life in that we've centralized the relationship in Narnia of the professor who takes in these four kids. It's not set during the war, but these four children are a found family rather than biological siblings. They're, they each have lost their parents for different reasons that we don't really touch on, but they are coming to this house, this strange old house to meet this professor um, to find a home there. And they they don't expect to take to this professor character the way that they do. And they find and forge this incredible relationship that lasts over time. So so this story, while they go into Narnia, it jumps through time. Uh, we start with the children when they're young arriving at the house and we end with the children when they're much older. And we realize that this professor uh, who's been inhabiting the house is uh, is not really telling us the story is not really there. That's the ghost of this professor who's had this longstanding relationship with these children. So it's, it's about the fact that things end. It's about mm-hmm. the fact that seasons must change mm-hmm. and that for flowers to grow in the spring, we we have to have the winters. Um, and that within each season, there are many little seasons and that there's no helping that. And it's beautiful. 
to live through time. And it doesn't have to be a tragedy that it can be perhaps the richest thing of all that things change in cycles again and again and again. Um, and that uh, time is ours to fill with the things and the people that we love. That's very exciting. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to Alice for a second because I found it, I find it interesting that uh, how many times we've used uh, down the rabbit hole or you said, oh, I'm going to use that pun again. And um, I don't know if people realize that Alice in Wonderland is literally the most quoted book in the world with the exception of the Bible. Um, and that by far down the rabbit hole is Lewis Carroll's biggest contribution uh, to uh, to the English language and that metaphor. Most of the time we use that metaphor as a time suck of some sort. Um, but we also use it as a guilty pleasure. Uh, you know, uh, I'm down the rabbit hole for whatever show you're watching or what have you. So what guilty pleasure are you, what rabbit hole of guilty pleasure are each of you enjoying separate from your work at, uh, at Bad Hats? I'm, I'm in a nature rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> I'm very fortunate that my family has a little cottage out in the Kawartha Lakes and uh, it feels like a rabbit hole. Um, you're right about this down the rabbit hole thing. It's something we all say all the time. It to me, it feels like you're down a thought loop. You're you're stuck in a hole uh, that you need to somehow find a way out of. But it's interesting that in all three stories, we're adapting as well. They all go through a magical portal at some point, and this is common in a lot of stories. But in Peter Pan, Peter comes through the window, takes them out the window, and then they end up in Neverland. And in Alice, they obviously go down a rabbit hole, end up in Wonderland. In Narnia, they walk through a wardrobe and they end up in Narnia. Um, anyway, mine is the woods. Mine is the rabbit hole of escaping the city of Toronto and disappearing into this sort of magical place that I'm in. That's great. That's very, that's very, uh, true to the original. That's a, that's a classic. That's what Alice was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I was going to say, Frank, earlier, because I, I was actually counting, and by the time you mentioned how many times we said down the rabbit hole, that was six, and I feel like you should have a counter on the podcast, because <laughs> I'm sure this happens every time you interview anyone, of being like, how many times will they say it? Um, we did six, and now we've done seven more, or however many. Um, uh, I, I don't know I don't know if I could pinpoint one exact thing. I think um, the two that come to mind is I've been, I've been going down this, like, pretty fantastic journey through British panel shows. Um, there, there, there's England as this amazing, amazing thing around celebrity where they're just regular people. It's not, I mean, everybody's just a regular person, but in England, it's, it's the sort of thing where they're just your neighbors. They just have a house down the way and you see them and they take out the garbage and they wave to you. And it's, it's a much more normal thing. There's no paparazzi. There's no, I mean, there's no huge star system either. There's no, there's no multimillionaires who are making it in British TV and, and BBC. Um, but what's lovely about England is that they, they, they really feature these people on really inane talk shows that are all just about like playing stupid games together or, <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, trying to figure yeah. out who's lying or like doing trivia because right. they love pub quiz and trivia. And it's, you wouldn't think it's that entertaining, but it's that R British wry humor. Um, and it's these people that you, there's sort of a circuit. So you see them go from one show to another and you kind of follow your favorite ones. 
so I've been I've been <laughs> honestly down a guilty pleasure of just watching all of these. Would I lie to you? QI, eight out of ten cats does countdown, <laughs> Taskmaster. Um to, to to throw them it's all publicly funded. They don't need the advertisement, but <laughs> well that's go for it. that's definitely a rabbit hole. And you have a rabbit uh picture on your wall. So uh so you're really hitting the theme heavy. How about you, yeah. Fiona? My answer is pretty boring. Um <laughs> my answer is I've been not down a puzzle rabbit hole for the last year, I think. I just can't stop doing puzzles um, because it's funny that you said things that aren't bad hats. And the the sad truth is that most of my time mm-hmm. is spent yeah. working yeah. Um, uh, at bad hats or uh, for other companies I freelance for. So um, it's one of the only things that I can do to stop myself from doing that is to sit down and have to go, where does this line match up with mm-hmm. another line? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also gives myself a, a little, a, yeah, it's just a busy thing for my, for my fingers and my, my brain to do. And, uh, and often, Another positive but unfortunate result of that is that it gives enough space in my brain for new thoughts to come in and I go, I'll put those in the art. And then I get back up and get to my computer and I start writing other things. So uh, it's a breeding ground for uh, all kinds of stuff. So you guys are all performers. So I'm really interested if uh, you and and you're doing Alice in Wonderland. And I always ask this question, so it's probably going to be much easier for you. But um, if you were a character from Alice in Wonderland, uh, either a character you're playing, uh, who would you be and what part of your personality is best reflected in that character? I, I, I relate pretty hard to the characters that I play in the show. Mm-hmm. One of them, my, my primary character is, is, is Tweedledee with opposite Landon's Tweedledum. And, uh, I think that I relate in, in the sense that it, those two characters represent our relationship really well, which is, mm-hmm. um, just playing off each other, constant tomfoolery, um, and just a, a flair for fun. <laughs> um, so it feels like I get just to like run around in a in a playground that I built mm-hmm. with my best friend, with my best friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a, it's a joy. It feels like very very true to my specific relationship with Landon. If I was a character though in Wonderland, it's hard to say. I, on different days, it's different people. Sometimes I feel a bit, um, I feel a bit like, uh, well, Victor's a bit of the white knight, but sometimes I feel like I I get a bit white knight-ish uh, sometimes where I'm like, follow me through the, through the astral. I'll show you the way. But then also um, spouting complete nonsense most of the time. Um, yeah, I relate pretty hard to the, to the characters in the, in the show. There's a reason we kind of wrote them for ourselves because right. it makes makes the logical sense. I'm not sure if Landon feels the same way. Maybe Landon doesn't relate at all. No, I, I definitely do. <laughs> I I think what makes these characters in the book, not just in our version, but in the book, so so um, relatable is that none of them feel like full people. They all feel like aspects of all of us. So like Fiona said, on different days, I probably relate stronger to different ones. Uh, yeah, together we play Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who in our version they're constantly saying the phrase let's go uh and they're sort of these two characters who are just they have a positive outlook on everything they're really jacked up on learning stuff and they're the first people in our version of uh alice they're the first people who alice stumbles upon who aren't telling her what she should do and how she has to do something and are sort of just open to anything could happen and let's go learn a thing and let's go on an adventure so I think Fiona and I, as artists and as creators, on the days where we get a little too cerebral, 
and we're looking for the answers and we're looking at the fear, you got to adopt that Tweedledee Tweedledum attitude of just like, I don't know the answer, but let's go looking uh, that place. We also play the Hatter and the Hare opposite each other. So there's sort of this duo ship that we get to play with. But I would say I want to be the Caterpillar, <laughs> but I think I'm often Alice living in this place of questions uh -huh. and dealing with the anxiety that that place can cause but i would i would i want to be the caterpillar <laughs> who like alice is living in a place of question but is so at peace with it and not oh, having the answers that's so a, that's a i great think answer. i want to be the caterpillar but i'm probably more alice that's a great answer victor I think Fiona hit it on the head. White and I was going to be my first, um, my first response. Um, but it's funny, right? Because there's, there's the book and then there's their adaptation that we've done. And obviously the listeners on the podcast don't necessarily know the adaptation we've done, but Fiona has, Fiona has fused one, uh, Adventures in Wonderland and Looking Glass in a lot of ways. And so Tweedledee and Tweedledum are in our version of Alice, even though <clears throat> we're not ripping off the Disney, but even though it's not in the original adventures, we've kind of combined that in that way as well. And in the same way, the Dodo and the White Knight, we've kind of put together the fawn in the um, the fawn in the wood and uh, the unicorn from the big uh, 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 unicorn lion fight are put together. So it's almost hard for me to say because I feel now I've I've, I've experienced this stage version more than I've experienced the book, mm -hmm. um, and so my my perception of reality is a bit skewed in that sense but i do think the white knight the dodo both of those i see i see parallels in myself i also think um the mad hatter is me on like a on most on most of my like most of my most of the days where like the the adaptation that fiona did of the mad hatter and the marcher the reason i earlier said that it's my favorite scene and the favorite song the concept behind it is um alice kind of stumbles into a dinner party and it's all adults talking um, and it's the idea of what it, what someone who's younger might feel like witnessing the most inane adult conversation. How are you? I'm busy. Oh, me too. So busy. So busy. Isn't that hard? Oh, it's so hard. Did you hear? I heard. You know, sort of complete nonsense as she's being sort of trying to trying to trying to chime in. And they go, "Why don't you sit here at the kids' table?" And they continue with their with their kind of inane banter. So I think I've become that <laughs> a little too often in my life. Uh, sort of the uh, like, oh, you know, the I joke. I send Fiona memes a lot of being like, "How are you busy? Busy?" And she's like, oh, "This is just art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life." Um, so those three are my are my go to. Well, those were excellent, excellent answers, and it's been such a pleasure uh, chatting with you. I'm going to say that my takeaway from the creative energy the three of you have you're all in different you're all in different locations and what is really uh what this really i have this powerful feeling that you guys are all quantumly entangled and that you're affecting each other no matter where you are at all times and that there's a synergy to what you're trying to accomplish that comes through. It comes out in your mission statement about curiosity and stuff, but there's something more primal. There's something about the dynamic that I'm witnessing between the three of you that just reminds me of folks that are connected creatively, quantum entangled, and that's how they live their life. And it's a really beautiful thing to, uh, to, to see and to witness and listen to. And I think my... Uh, my audience is going to enjoy this episode immensely. 
And uh, I, I know that they're all going to want to see your show, whether it's in person or you put it on film one day. Uh, I, we all hope to see uh, your Alice in Wonderland um, uh, version. Uh, and feel free if you have you know, any final thoughts or anything you'd like to uh, say about what's upcoming, now would be the time. I would just say thanks so much for having us on. It's it's such a it's truly a delight to get to go back to think about the source material since Victor said we've lived with it as a as our adaptation for so long. And um it's uh I almost will say I don't want to pick up the book. I have it here next to me, one of my five copies with all of these post-it notes in it. And I I almost don't want to look at it because it makes me want to rewrite the show because the possibilities <laughs> Alice are endless. Don't worry, Landon, I won't rewrite the book. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's just such a great universe to get to play in, and we're really lucky to have to have gotten to, to go there and that people liked what we did um, in the sandbox of Wonderland. So I do hope your audiences can find their way to Toronto in the winter to see it at Soul Pepper <laughs> Theatre in the Distillery District. If not, I have a hunch it will be around for, for years to come in different locations. So look out for us. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, if you're in Toronto in December... Uh, or early January, or if you're in Winnipeg in December, uh, we're doing Alice in Toronto and Winnipeg will be Narnia. So uh, there'll be two shows. They're, uh, they're good, like almost 1500 miles apart. So like, you know, just a quick drive. Get out of it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Last thoughts, uh, Landon? No, not really. It is great to get back to the source material. I haven't thought about this for a long time. I have like a newfound appreciation for one of the babies I made. So Thanks for giving that to us, Frank, and thanks for having us. Yeah, well, enjoy your uh, rabbit holes, and uh, thanks again, and uh, best of luck with the Narnia show. <laughs> thanks so much, Frank. <laughs> right. Thanks, Frank. Later. Bye. Bye. Bye.